Hello, Paul Osborne here. Thank you for downloading this latest podcast. Now, do you remember Wonga? A Wonga was quite the thing a few years ago. You remember payday lending? It works like this. You have bills, but you can't pay them right now. So Wonga will lend you the cash to cover those bills, and then you pay them back. And when you do, you give them a little bit on top for their trouble. Except it would rarely be a one-off transaction. Wonga would sort of sink its claws into your life. It was always there, ready to offer a little bit more help the next time things got tight, and it was never quite going to disappear. It might be helpful to keep this in mind as we dive for the next few minutes into the world of supply chain finance and the latest scandal to engulf Westminster, this time centred on lobbying. And we can't say we weren't warned why more than 10 years ago David Cameron told us that lobbying was the next big scandal. We all know how it works, he said back in 2010. The lunches, the hospitality, the quiet word in your ear – the ex-ministers and ex-advisers for hire, helping big business find the right way to get its way. Of course, what we didn't know at the time was just how hard Mr Cameron was going to work to make his own predictions come true. This is all rather complicated. So look, what happened? Well, when Cameron was Prime Minister, there was a chap called Rex Greensill who started to pop up in Whitehall, specifically in Downing Street, so much so that he ended up with a number 10 business card. His company, Greensill Capital, was involved in supply chain finance. And this is where our old friend Wonga comes in. Supply chain finance works a bit like this. You're a government and you buy lots of things from lots of different suppliers. But for some bizarre reason, it takes you a very long time to pay them. And this threatens the survival of some of those suppliers. So here comes supply chain finance to save you. They'll pay the bills for you right now. Then, when you finally get round to finding the cash, you pay them back and you give them a little fee on top for their services. Once Cameron left office, he ended up working for Greensill, advising the firm. Reportedly, he also picked up share options worth many millions of pounds. Then, a few years later, Greensill got into trouble, and that's when Cameron started working the phones. He lobbied the Chancellor texting and calling Rishi Sunak and two other Treasury ministers, pushing them to give Greensill government-backed loans. There are a few odd things about this. First of all, why would a government ever need a middleman to help it out because it was running short of cash? How does a government which controls the supply of money run short of cash? Does the cabinet turn up one morning in Downing Street to find the dishwashers broken and they can't scratch together the money between them to get it fixed? It doesn't make any sense. If you're a government and you're worried about the impact on small business of not paying your bills on time, you could, you know, try paying your bills on time. That is what the rest of us do. There are other questions too. Would Rishi Sunak have, as he promised to, pushed the team at the Treasury to help out if Greensill hadn't been able to get a former Prime Minister to make a quick phone call? What about all the other companies, the ones that don't have a former Prime Minister on the payroll? Greensill, by the way, didn't limit itself to just hiring former prime ministers. Bill Crothers was paid around £150,000 a year in his role as a senior civil servant, overseeing public money totalling around 40 billion quid. While doing this job, obviously, he also did need to take on an additional part-time role 
as an advisor to the board of Greensill Capital. So you had a civil servant overseeing tens of billions of pounds of government spending, helping to advise a company that wanted work from that government, for which it would be paid with public money. Then, when he left his civil service job in 2016, he took a job on the board at Greensill. Now, that's the kind of movement that should attract the interest of the Advisory Committee on Business Appointments. It was set up precisely to stop things like this, but it didn't know. And it didn't know because Mr Crowthers didn't tell them. And he didn't tell them because he didn't think he needed to because he'd already been working part-time for Greensill while working in a senior government role. Now, ministers have leapt on this, demanding that other civil servants reveal any lucrative second jobs they might have in the coming days, and that's fine. But the risk, of course, is that all this focus on civil servants lets MPs and ministers off the hook. There is an investigation into all of this, even if Parliament rejected Labour's demand for an independent public parliamentary inquiry. But the investigation the government has set up is not just looking at lobbying, it's looking at all the issues around supply chain finance. So even if it does uncover anything that is, let's say, questionable, it could very easily be lost in the long grass. Now, as I say, this is all very complicated, and you'd be forgiven for wondering if it even matters. I suppose it comes down to the question of who the people we send to Westminster are working for. Are they working for you, the constituents they represent, or are they working for the businesses who hope to profit from government and who they themselves might be able to profit from if they get a couple of juicy advisor roles at some point in the future? Let's be clear, no government could work properly if it didn't talk to business. But to avoid all these allegations of cronyism and corruption, transparency is key. It needs to be done in the open. But it took freedom of information requests to get hold of Rishi Sunak's text messages with David Cameron. And it took more than a month to even get a cursory statement from the former prime minister. And it's not even as if any rules have necessarily been broken. It's more that these rules are so pitifully weak that they allow this kind of thing to go on. If the rules genuinely do allow a civil servant on a six-figure salary to take a lucrative second job from a firm which has a vested interest in accessing public funds, then it's possible those rules are ridiculous. If regulators who are meant to stop this kind of thing are only able to send exasperated letters bemoaning the fact that they can't do anything, then maybe those regulators need a little more power. But will there be any actual political consequences for all this? Given how opaque and complex it all is, maybe not. But if you have a long enough memory, you might recall the Tory Slee scandals of the mid-1990s. You had a party that had been in power for more than a decade that had perhaps got too close to rich business leaders. A revolving door between Westminster and well-paid roles in the city. Is any of this sounding familiar? Few people now could recall any of these specific allegations back then, but that sleaze label stuck. It became emblematic of a government out of touch with the concerns of ordinary people, more interested in trousering as much cash as possible. And that label could stick again, that idea that they're all the same, they're all on the fiddle, they're all on the make. It's unfair to those MPs and civil servants who aren't up to these kind of tricks. But if that label sticks again, Boris Johnson may find he has more of a problem than he thinks at the moment. 
We'll leave it there for now with the usual reminder that there's more on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Party Games Pod. There's a full archive at PartyGamesPodcast.com of the nearly 200 episodes so far. Heavens above. And I am with my uh, infrequent requests for a rating or review wherever you're listening to this, which apparently is incredibly helpful and is why I should be begging for these things more often. For the moment, though, thank you for listening and goodbye.